and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and spiritists out of the land, as we mentioned. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they camped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the armies of the Philistine, he was a Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And a servant said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Now we know when we don't get the answer from God right away, we should always look to tarot cards and psychics. No, no. So the story went on to tell us that Saul put on a disguise and he asked the medium to conduct a seance for him and to call up whomever he requested. And his request was Samuel. And whatever happened in the meantime, she called up Samuel. Samuel appeared. And the first one to scream in shock and horror was the medium because most of their actions are all, we might even say, were basically that of a shyster, and they were fooling people with their suggestive and leading questions and information they would feed them back. So she screamed when she saw Samuel, and then she realized it was Saul, and she sought from him a promise to do her no harm, and Saul reassured her. Then we're told of a dialogue that ensued between Saul and Samuel. And the first question that Samuel asked Saul is, why did you disturb me? Obviously, he was in Abraham's bosom, a place of comforts. And he asked Saul, what's the problem? Why have you had this medium call me up? Now, we do know the Bible forbids in Deuteronomy the use of contacting the dead through a medium. And this is one of those biblical anomalies. And God can do whatever he wants. Amen? And he doesn't answer to us. And if he wanted to allow Samuel to communicate with Saul, then he can do exactly that. And then Samuel replied to Saul because he told him the Lord's not speaking to me. He said that's because you disobeyed him at the Amalekite event of some chapters earlier. And he said, therefore, the Lord has become your enemy and he has torn the kingdom from you and given it to David. He then drops a truth bomb, if you will, onto Saul that drives Saul on his face on the ground when he told him, tomorrow you and your three sons are going to be dead and the armies of Israel will be defeated by the Philistines. Now, we use Saul's encounter with Samuel by use of a medium to make a couple of points concerning the trend that is happening in the church of using horoscopes, tarot cards, and psychics. And sadly, these things are on the rise within the church for the same reason that Saul looked to them. And it's actually a bit prophetic, if you will. And I think we'll find the reason in Amos 8:11, where the Lord said, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Many people are not hearing the word of the Lord, even though they gather in what they call a house of the Lord today. And the word of God is not being taught in many churches around the world. And therefore the experiential or the spirit realm is sought out through other means because of the absence of the power of the word. The word of God is living and powerful. 
It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And indeed, all of it is inspired, as Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, we found two things to consider to keep things from going bad to worse in our own lives when the heat is on, so to speak, or we're in need of answers. And the first thing was a reminder that getting answers from the spirit realm doesn't mean they're divine. There is another team out there that is more than willing to communicate with their limited base of information, things that people would deem to be spiritual and having heard from the other side, satisfying their search for information. And we also were reminded that being directed by the Spirit is never to the exclusion of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is never going to speak in contradiction to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is never going to direct us to do things that are against God's Word. And finally, we close with a reminder and a caution to us all, and that is through the actions of Saul, we glean this truth. There is no position or place of power worth disobeying the Lord for. There's nothing that disobedience is going to gain us that will be beneficial to us, and we have Saul's life as our example. Now, Saul was told by Samuel at one point earlier in his life, When you were little in your own eyes, did not the Lord anoint you and make you king over Israel? Yet, as we have examined the life of Saul, we saw things begin to get bad, and then they finally continued to get worse until we arrived at the state that he was in in chapter 28. Now, 28 was a bit of a parenthesis in the narrative, so to speak, and we return now to the sequence of events that were launched back in chapter 27 when David made a feelings and emotion-based decision. If you remember, 27.1 said, David said in his heart, in the seat of emotions and by his feelings, he was being driven. And he said this, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Now remember what we pointed out last time was that David arrived at this conclusion with well over 20 years of God's protection and provision via the efforts of Saul to kill him. All he had to do was look back on God's faithfulness and he could look forward to the same in the future. The Lord had proven that he was going to assure David or ensure that David was going to be the king and yet David saw it as inevitable that Saul was going to succeed someday in his efforts to kill him. Now, we touched on some of the things when we study chapter 7 that are in chapter 29 tonight. We'll look at them in depth and with greater detail. The focus tonight turns from Saul back to David, who is in the fortress of the Philistines. And tonight we'll find him marching with King Achish in a military parade And he is with the armies of the Philistines marching toward Israel. Now, this brings us to our title tonight. We're going to look back on one of our points from chapter 22 as we remember and explain it. And our title tonight is simply, and for those of you uh, who are um, grammar experts or punctuation experts, you may not like this, but I'll explain it. Our topic or title tonight is One Way or Another. And yes, the comma is in there to insert a pause in our 
thoughts. There is one way or another way. And David made a choice further upstream from the events we'll look at this evening that was another way. In other words, it was a departure from the way that he had been going in previous years under God's covering and faithfulness. The way he had been going was God's way, God's leading, God's timing. And then after 20 years of God's way, God's leading and God's timing, David chose another way, his way, his timing, and the wrong way. Now what we learned when he made this decision was, and here's what I want to lean back on from chapter 27, is that you can't do the wrong thing the right way. The wrong thing is the wrong thing in every way. <laughs> now, people often say, well, what they did was wrong, but they did it with a right heart. You ever heard that? Well, you can't do the wrong thing the right way. There is no right way to do the wrong thing. David took a wrong turn. David went another way. And tonight we're going to see the consequences of David's decision. And therefore, when we're faced with our own difficulties, we too need to stay on the one way that we began when we started following Jesus and accepted him as not just Savior, but Lord and therefore director of our lives. And the only way that is the best way is God's way. That's where you say, Amen. Amen. Let's start off with 29, 1 to 5. So if you would, stand and read with me, please. 1 Samuel 29, we'll look at 1 to 5. 1 Samuel 29, 1. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him, since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? You may be seated. Now, just a little note before we begin. We're going to kind of come in the side door on our points of observation tonight, and we'll draw some conclusions from this historical text that are reminders for you and I. And I have to say, it's not often, it seems like every time you study and I read a series of uh, commentaries for any given message, and it's not unusual to come across something that makes you scratch your head a bit and say, well, I don't know about that, if I agree with that, or if the text supports that. But it's not often that I come across something where I disagree with the majority of the commentators that I read. But this would be one of those times. And the fact is this. Most commentators believe that David was actually going to march with the Philistines and fight against Israel. And that God used the Philistine princes to stop David from doing something that he would later regret for the rest of his life. Now, let me just say this. There is no way that David, 
who twice spared the life of Saul, though he had him dead to rights, when he could have killed him easily, was not only now going to fight against Saul in battle, but it would be against his own tribe and area of uh, inheritance, Judah, and therefore he was going to be fighting against his own family. That wasn't going to happen. David was not going to go into battle against Israel, and the Philistines were half right about what he would do when the battle was raging. Now, in 1 Samuel 27, 8 to 12, we're told of David and his men who went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, for those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. And whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, oxen, donkeys, camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. And Achish would say... Where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah or against the southern area of the Jeremelites or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man or woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus his behavior, this was his behavior all the time. He dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David saying, he has made his people in Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my what? Servant forever. David had actually been raiding the cities of Israel's enemies who were inhabiting the promised land. And then he was lying to Achish about who it was and where it was he had raided and who he had plundered. And the Philistine princes were half right and half wrong. David was going to turn on them in battle, and he was going to fight for Israel. That's the half right part. But he was not going to win over King Saul. That was not the reason. That's the half wrong part. And Achish was obviously influenced by the gifting of David's plunder from his raids. And he even went to bat for David against the four other Philistine lords. And Joshua 13.3 says there were five lords or five princes of the Philistines. They saw through David's marching with the rear guard of the Philistine armies and knew what he was up to, or at least thought it was awfully suspicious. And the four lords demanded David return to the city Achish gave him, or Ziklag, and not allow David near the battlefield. And then they recall for Achish a song that was sung about David that set Saul against him at the beginning after he had killed his champion Goliath. In verse 5, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, for you and I, A point of application we can draw from this historical setting is simply this, and it's a reminder of why we need to stick to the one way, God's way, that has gotten us as far as it has gotten us, and not opt for another way when we tire of the pressures of the enemy, the pursuit of the enemy, or the difficulties of life. We need to stay the course, stick to the old path where the good way is. Now, here's our point of application drawn from this historical setting, and it's just this. And again, remember, we're kind of coming in the side door on these observations. Listen, God can use our past to better us. Satan wants to use it to destroy or discourage us. God can use our past to better us. Do not all things work together for good to those who love God? God who are the called according to his purpose? 
And Satan wants to do exactly the opposite. He wants to use our past to destroy us, diminish us, or discourage us. And we're going to see in our closing verse how this caused David to finally do what we have no record of him doing under the 16 months he lived in Philistine territory under the leadership of Achish, which is seeking the Lord. But here we see how the enemy used David's past against him in an effort to seek to hinder David's plans. Now, in our next section, we're going to see a bit of evidence that maybe David was having some type of positive or spiritual influence on Achish. But the other four princes brought up David's past because David's triumph came at the expense of the Philistines when he slayed their champion, Goliath. Now, for you and I personally, what we can glean from this is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. And that is, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. David was a believer, a servant of the Lord, the man after God's own heart. Achish was not. He served Philistine gods. He was an enemy of Israel. Four, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Says the Lord, we touched on this Sunday. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says El Shaddai, or the Lord Almighty. Now, David had yoked himself with the Philistines, and they were unimpressed with all of his raids and plundering. And all they could think of was, this is the guy who killed Goliath and many of our fellow soldiers, and he is now estranged from Saul and would do anything to get back in Saul's good graces. Now this also reminds us that God is a God who is forgiving. He forgives our past. He even makes our past experiences a foundation for ministry opportunities. And all the enemy wants to do with our past is use it to discourage us, remind us of our failures when God is wanting us to keep our eyes on the prize and to lift our eyes up to the mountain from whence comes our help, according to Psalm 121. Satan wants to use our past to discourage us. Satan wants to use our past to destroy us, or at the very least, thwart our plans for doing good for God's kingdom. Well, David, in his thoughts and in his heart and emotion, he was right in one sense. Being in Philistines' territory caused Saul to stop pursuing him. But David also had nothing to show for the 16 month. He was in Philistine territory except for raiding and killing towns of people and carrying off their livestock in an effort to dupe Achish into believing he was on their side. What did all these things get him? Nothing. His plan fell apart. What will we get out of yoking ourselves to the world? Nothing. Except the heartache that comes from God leading us one way and us choosing to go another. 
Peter put it like this in 1 Peter 4, 3 to 4, that we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, that is the Gentiles or unbelievers, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation or unsavedness, speaking evil of you. Now, the world and the God of this world wants us to live under the shadow of our past. They will never celebrate our triumphs over evil. They will try and use the past that we have overcome as an effort to destroy us or at the very least diminish our testimony. But God has separated our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And he brings them to our mind no more. This is one of the many reasons we don't yoke ourselves with unbelievers as David did. They're going one way and we're going another. So let's see what else we can learn from David's abandoning the way that he had traveled for some 20 plus years that kept him safe and provided for. And then he chose to go another way. Pick it up in 6 through 11. We'll finish off this chapter and then look into the next. Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me in the army is good in my sight. For to this day, I've not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace that you may not displease the Lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, Depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now, as we mentioned a moment ago, it seems as though David was having some type of influence on Achish, a positive spiritual influence, if you will, as the king himself begins to employ some of the language that David would use when he would talk about his own God. He incorporates in his oath uh, the term Yahweh, as he was declaring, as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives. David was upright in all that he did, and the king had not found evil in him all the days of his life, except for the unknown fact that David had been lying to him all along. And then in verse 9, he says that David was as good as an angel of Elohim. And again, he uses a Hebrew term for the true and living God. And then he bids him to go in peace and instructs David to arise at first light, return to Ziklag. And David, in the midst of this, identifies himself as Achish servant and Israel as Achish enemy. And again, this is deception on David's part, as he knew that fighting against Israel would not only mean fighting against the inheritance of his own tribe, and that being Judah, not only against his own family, but because he would be fighting against Saul, that meant he would be fighting against his dear brother, Jonathan. Now, David had truly pulled the wool over Achish's eyes, as a Philistine king saw David one way, but David was actually acting in another. 
Achish as king of Gath would have likely been the most powerful of the five Philistine princes since Gath was the capital or chief city of the Philistine. And yet David's influence, positive as it may have been, is outweighed by Achish loyalty to his own people and the other princes, though his words are peppered with language that favors David. Now, David, who is the future king of God's people, declares his allegiance to another king in verse 8. And again, this is deception. Now, in James 1, 5 through 8, as it applies to you and I in this historical narrative that we're examining tonight, we're told, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach or reservation, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive what? Anything from the Lord. Why? He is a double-minded man. That could be translated as two-spirited, unstable in all his ways. Now, again, drawing our minds back to chapter 27, when this year and four months of deception began, we find no reference in the midst of David's purposing in his heart a record of prayer, a record of seeking the Lord, a time of fasting before this very difficult and painful decision. David purposed in his heart, David made his own decision to live among the Philistines in order to escape Saul, from whom he had been divinely protected for the last 20 plus years. Well, what happened during this season outside the land of promise? David, we could say, was unstable in all of his ways. He was marauding and raiding cities, deceiving Achish, even going as far as calling himself Achish servant and Achish his lord and king. Now, this is kind of parallels what we talked about on Sunday, and it's a point of application for you and I in the midst of David's actions and the time in which we now live. And the fact is this. Here's something else we need to remember. Listen, we don't need to act like the world to win them to God. We don't need to act like the world to win them to God. David had used deception, a way of the world against Achish, and it seemed to have some kind of impact on him. But note that when the pressures of the other four princes were put on Achish, who did he side with? Did he side with David or did he side with his countrymen? Well, obviously he decided with the Philistines. And remember back in verse 3, Achish had called David a defector. And this is how far David had gone in acting one way or being one way and then acting another. I don't believe that David was a defector. I don't believe that David ever quit believing in the true and living God. I believe David was tired of being pursued. I believe David was tired of hiding in caves. I believe David was tired of living in the wilderness and he decided life in the midst of Israel's enemies is better than a life of being pursued by Saul. Now, as a reminder for you and I, in the midst of all of the things we are facing today, we need to remember the wisdom of Proverbs 11.30 that says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is what? Is wise. And listen, like with what we propose concerning David, there are people today within the church that are getting tired of being viewed in a negative light by the world. 
They're getting tired of being accused of being haters and bigoted and all the other things we see getting thrown at us today for our exclusive claims of salvation being only through Jesus Christ, even though he made the statement today. I just read an article this morning that there are those who are diminishing the content of John 14, 6 because it eliminates other religions as a means by which heaven can be accessed. And I'm speaking about people in the church saying we need to blot John 14, 6 out where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There are people today who are getting tired of being viewed in a negative light because of the church's moral standard in a world that's kind of got the anything goes as long as you believe that it's right for you. And yet we cannot be one way and then act another like David does here. It won't work for us any more than it worked for him. And yes, we are to be wise soul winners today. But we need to remember that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. We are to live in a righteous manner before God. And as Paul would write again to Cardinal Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34, he would say, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts what? Good habits. Some uh, uh, translations render that good communication, and that would be a fitting and acceptable translation. It kind of makes the same point. And then he says, awake to righteousness and do not what? Sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. He goes on to say, I speak this to your shame. And David is kind of the poster boy for our point. The trying to blend in efforts didn't work the way he thought they would. It didn't work as he lied to Achish and was plundering areas of Israel's enemies and people who were Israel's enemies and then reporting to Achish that he was actually attacking his countrymen, Israel. He thought this would work. It was an effort to make himself acceptable to Achish, but it didn't work. And the other four Philistine lords saw right through it. So with all of his efforts, he gets sent back to Ziklag, hat in hand, so to speak. Now, First Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8, we're also reminded that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in what? Holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now, there's an example of immorality used here in the form of sexual immorality. And it's just an example of the actions of those who do not know God. But immorality is certainly not limited to that by any means. And David sought to do God's will by acting in ways that were contrary to God's nature. He was having fellowship with Israel's enemies, carrying out raids on cities, pillaging, plundering, and murdering. 
And listen, as we talked about on Sunday, we don't need to be in fellowship with what the world is doing and demanding of us today in order to reach them. We are to be completely distinct from this carnal world that is darkening more and more every day. And we don't need to resort to worldly actions to win the world to Christ, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness, which is defined as moral purity. Now, David had become unstable in all his ways, for he was called to be one way. He was called to be a man after God's own heart and therefore way. He was called and anointed as the future king of Israel, yet he acted another way. He acted like he was a servant of Achish, and Achish was his lord. Now, let's look at 1 to 7 of chapter 30 as we really get into the consequences of David's purposing in his heart. Verse 1, chapter 30. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south in Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Let's pick up verse 8 too. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now, Think of another time where David wasn't where he was supposed to be. Second Samuel 11 will remind us that at the time of the year when kings went out to war, David was actually home on the roof of his palace checking out his neighbor's wife, and his life would be changed forever, as with that of Bathsheba's. Now, David, in bringing up the rear in the military parade of the Philistines, ends up reaping, if you will, what he had sown as among the villages that he had attacked and plundered. There were Amalekite villages where he had slain all the people there. Yet, in the midst of uh, David's huge mistake, God does not allow David or his soldiers' families to be killed, though the tradition of the day would have certainly been to do so. Instead, the Amalekites burned Ziklag to the ground and carry off their families. And yet, the fate of their families would be unknown to David and his men at this time. And therefore, they weep until they have no more tears. And then talk began to circulate among them about stoning David, the man that they had followed continuously and unreservedly for years, wherever he went, including into Philistine territory. And now for the first time in this season of David's life, we see him doing what he should have done before he ever went to Gath and later Ziklag. He strengthened himself in the Lord. 
Now that phrase means, as a Hebraism, he sought consolation and strength through prayer and his confidence in the Lord was renewed. Now, we can see this in Psalm 27, 13 to 14, kind of a catch-all psalm where David is just talking about some of his life experiences where he said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall what? Strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Now, it's kind of interesting that the word wait can mean to maintain active hope. And this is what was happening with David. He had reactivated hope through his obedience and his turning and seeking after Lord, the Lord. He had gone the one way he should have gone, then he chose another, and now he is back on the right path again. And he goes to Abiathar, the priest, the son of the high priest who was killed because David had lied to him. And when he came to Abiathar, and he was without weapon and without escort, if you remember, Ahimelech said to him, why are you here? Why are you by yourself? How come you, who is so important and part of the king's family, the king being Saul, why are you by yourself? And he said, well, the the business was so urgent. I didn't have time to grab a weapon. I didn't have time to put together a group of men to escort me. And then Saul got wind of this, thought that Ahimelech had sided with uh, Saul or with David rather. And he killed not only Ahimelech and his own family. And obviously this one young man had escaped, but he killed the whole town of the priest. Now, David says, bring me the ephod. It was a high priest mantle, or we might even describe it as a cape or a shawl. And he inquires of the Lord as to whether or not he should pursue the Amalekites. Now, one thing I think we need to pause and point out is, is that tragedy brought David back to his senses. It brought him back to the right way after he had gone another. And God can do that in our lives as well. And we can assume that the Urim and Thummim were employed in this position, uh, petition rather. And we mentioned back in 28, we don't know how they worked. We do know that they were on the high priest ephod. They were some way, uh, some believe they would light up and give a direction or an answer. And these two stones were somehow used to answer uh, the priests of the people's positions. And the answer in this case was about the best news that David could have hoped for. As the Lord says, yes, pursue them. Yes, you're going to overtake them or defeat them. And you will recover all that they have taken. Now, Zechariah 9.12 gives us an interesting reminder where we're told to return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today, I declare that I will, what's the next word? Restore double to you. Isn't that how God is? He is a repairer of the breach. He restores us. And because our God is a God of restoration, he can restore years eaten by the swarming locust swarms of life. He can restore hope. He can provide strength. He never leaves us nor forsakes us when we have abandoned the one way and chosen another. And we therefore can appropriate as our own what David experiences here. And it's just this. Here's our final point of personal application. Listen this evening. No matter how far we have fallen, God is willing and able to restore. No matter how far we have fallen, God is willing and able to restore. 
One of the most beautiful things about what we have in front of us and the chapters we have beyond us is that as David gets back on the right track, we don't read anywhere of him now being the man pretty much after God's own heart. We don't read of him being the man that is most of the time a man after God's own heart. And what that means is when we mess up, and we do, amen, when we mess up and when we repent, listen, we don't become God's stepchild. We are still his sons and daughters. We are restored to the place of being more than a conqueror, just like David is here. And hence the words of Psalm 139, 1-10 to remind us, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Somebody say something tonight. Now, the Lord knows every thought of our minds, yet he loves us. He knows every word that comes from our mouths, yet he saved us. He knows the hellish decisions that we're going to make at times, even after we have been called by his name, yet even there his hand shall lead us. And when we run from his perfect will and protection like David did, even there his hand will lead us and his right hand, symbolic of his power, will hold us. Now, all of that is in order to bring us to the place where David is here, returning to the strength of the Lord and calling on his name. I'm sure there are some here who are like me who have lived outside the will of God as a prodigal. And Psalm 139 is a very fitting description of that decade of my life. It was hell. I had given my life to Christ and lived for him for some time. Yet during that season, I failed, failed God miserably and was literally unstable in all my ways. But God, even when I made my bed in hell, even when my past was something the devil wanted to use to destroy me, God turned it for good, turned my past failures into a present victory and then later even into ministry. And I will say I wandered and lived with the Philistines for an extended period of time. But listen tonight, there's no asterisk by my name in the Lamb's book of life. I am just as much a uh, child of God as the day he saved me, even though I have had great failures in my life, even though you have had some in yours. Amen? Now, like David, I overtook my enemies by the strength of the Lord. And not only did I recover all, but the Lord has restored double to me. He restored my family. He restored my walk and service 
to him. And he did so by his mercy and his grace. Listen, when we've started one way and then gone another, when we get back to the old path, Jeremiah 6.16 is talking about the old path where the good way is. When you get back on the old path where the good way is, the end result is you find rest for your souls. And that is what our God does for us. That is who he is. It is his nature. Not because we deserve it, but because God is faithful when we are faithless. He is a good and loving and and caring God. He is a God of restoration. He is a God who still protects us, yet he knows all about us, every thought and every word, yet he still calls us his own. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus, tonight. And Father, we are grateful for your word. Thank you for this chapter and the ones before and after that remind us, Lord, that we are to stay on the path that you have appropriated or set before us and that we are to continue to walk in your ways. And Lord, it's not that we are perfect by any means, but we do thank you, Lord, that you have set before us a way of life and you have called us to a manner of living and a standard of belief and morality that is distinct from the world. And we do the world no favors when we bow to their wishes, even under the guise of trying to win them to you. We see the failure of that effort in David moving under the protection of a Philistine king when he had the king of kings and lord of lords as his covering and rear guard. So help us, Lord, to learn from these recorded failures in David's own life, but help us also to learn about your love and mercy from how you restored him and spoke to him when he sought after you and found strength in you. Help us to do the same when we grow weary of the struggles of life, the pursuits of the adversary, his efforts to use our past to discourage or destroy. Help us to remember there is a God in heaven who knows our name, who wrote us in his book of life in the blood of his own son, never to be erased. We thank you for these things tonight. We give you praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.